0: We're doing something a little different today. We've partnered with Hark Audio, a podcast curation app, to share some of our all-time favorite proof show moments. Stay tuned to hear the wild origin story of Chartreuse. Travel back to the 50s when Jell-O was a salad and learn the secrets of Old Bay seasoning. So when you think of liqueur, monks aren't really the first thing that come to mind. And yet a group of silent monks in southeast France created chartreuse, an elixir-turned liqueur. Here's Proof's managing producer and cocktail aficionado, Yumi Araki, digging into the history of the spirit which would not die.
1: So the monks go to work on the recipe, initially at their satellite monastery in Vauvert, France, and then at Le Grand Chartreuse in Grenoble. But the recipe is complicated. Each monk who works on the recipe took rigorous tasting notes. One monk wrote,
2: The roots, plants, and flowers must start to be gathered when they are at their peak and in dry weather if possible. They must then be dried in the shade in a place which is not damp and where they cannot be wetted by the rain. Where do you even begin with a recipe like that? The
1: other monks thought this too. I came across this book called The History of Great Chartreuse, and the author is just simply referred to as a Carthusian monk. And he describes the recipe kind of in a disparaging way.
3: It contained so many ingredients and rare herbs, which had to be prepared in so complicated a manner and mixed in such minute quantities that the possibility of marketing it on any considerable scale seemed doubtful.
4: But
1: luckily, the monks keep at it. The monks in Paris go on to share the recipe with the brothers at La Grande Chartreuse in Grenoble, and their successors really take the recipe to the next level. These successors are meticulous and kind of savage, to be honest. Here's an excerpt from Brother Jerome on his thoughts on his predecessor's work.
2: I'm surprised that those who made it did not write at the bottom of the recipe what they put in it, as their compositions were undoubtedly not compliant with it. They had also added Leonurus cardiaca, which is not in the recipe and which gave the elixir a very bad taste.
1: One of the wildest things that I came across in my research was that the drink was actually supposed to be a ruby color. So, needless to say, the recipe was confusing, and it produced all kinds of results. But eventually, after a lot of test-kitchen-style trials, the monks complete the Elixir of Long Life in 1764 and call it Elixir Vegetal. Given how much R&D they spent on this recipe, and how it professed to be a miracle elixir, the Carthusians understood the value it could bring to their order. A note on the three oldest copies of the manuscript from 1755 say that the recipe
3: must never leave the home of Reverend Father.
1: And so it's at this point that the recipe becomes a coveted secret, a recipe that's never to leave the Carthusian headquarters.
0: So at this point, the elixir is still like a medicine and not a liquor.
1: That's right. Think of Elixir Vegetal as kind of a medieval Airborne or something. Its alcohol strength is a whopping 138 proof. For reference, the average strength of a 12-ounce beer is 10 proof, so you can imagine the potency here.
0: Wait a second here. Isn't there some kind of taboo against alcohol and religion?
1: That's what I thought, too. So I asked Father Michael.
5: There's nothing, you know, certainly not in our Catholic tradition or in most traditions of the world, there's nothing wrong with alcohol itself. I mean, that's fine. Um, It's a gift, a gift from God.
1: The idea of monks selling an alcoholic beverage would become a bit of an issue later. But for now, the monks sold this medicinal elixir to the townspeople of Grenoble. Apparently, it was pretty unrivaled in its ability to ease things like palpitations, indigestion— fainting, and even difficulties during childbirth. I read one account from a woman born in 1894 that said, I remember when we were sick as children,
4: mother would give us a few drops of elixir because it was said to bring the temperature down. It burned terribly on the tongue, but apparently it was good to cure typhoid fever. For her, it was just a thing to cure everything. And our neighbor treated
1: his cows with it. So demand for elixir vegetal grew. And eventually, people began to develop a taste for the elixir outside of its medicinal purposes. I spoke with Matt LeFink, who works for Frederick Wildman & Sons, which is the American importer of chartreuse. Matt's kind of a chartreuse ambassador of sorts. He said,
2: Especially in that time period, tastes good. You know, a lot of alcohol in it, so it makes you feel a little funny. So people naturally started drinking it as a beverage a little bit more. And that's when the monks saw an opportunity to create a consumable, drinkable, approachable beverage that featured the health, you know, kind of uh, background that Elixir Vegetal had and also was just a a great kind of thing to just sip on and enjoy.
1: But just as the monks embark on another round of R&D to try to make the Elixir into a liqueur, the Age of Enlightenment and the French Revolution set in. People begin to criticize the church's role in society, and the Carthusians become targets of an anti-clerical wave. Chartreuse, the liqueur, almost doesn't get made.
4: So during the Enlightenment, which of course precedes the revolution during the 18th century, there was increasing hostility towards the church as an institution.
1: That's French historian Sarah Curtis. She's the director of European Studies at San Francisco State University. Professor Curtis says that during this time— Philosophers like Voltaire and Diderot began pointing fingers at religious teachings and the church in general. The public also criticized the wealth that certain religious institutions began to amass. The Carthusians were likely a target because they had a larger presence with multiple satellite houses and monasteries, and their elixir vegetal sales were really starting to take off.
4: The wealth of the church is something that the
2: revolutionaries want to tap into, and so they appropriate. Church land, and that would have included lands controlled by religious orders. As
1: part of this push, the French government begins seizing assets and removing religious orders from their houses of worship. The way it went down at La Grande Chartreuse was like this French troops arrived at the monastery in May of 1792. They tried to oust the monks, but they weren't successful, so they returned a second time in October. Dom Efren Couturel, a leading member of the Carthusians at La Grande Chartreuse, recalled the scene this way in a journal
3: entry. Poor monks. They had to leave everything and flee, digging holes to hide their treasures as they could not take them with them. Several of them were caught in their flight, hunted, in prison, or had their throats cut by furious revolutionaries. Some lurkier ones were able to escape the storm and fled abroad, or perish on the way from sorrow and hardship.
1: But luckily, one of the monks managed to smuggle out one bit of coveted treasure in his sandal, the secret elixir recipe.
0: Saved by the sandal.
1: Yeah, it was a really close call.
0: So I'm completely obsessed with perusing through old Time Life magazines, especially for the recipes. Salmon mousse, ham and banana holidays. Seriously, those really existed. But perhaps the most 70s of all vintage recipes is the Jell-O salad. And in this episode, producer Karen Given goes back in time to try to answer, why did Jell-O salad go out of style?
6: The domestic scientists, or home economists as they'd later become known, imagined a world where girls would receive a formal education in the science of cooking and cleaning, starting in elementary school and right on up through high school and college. And their whole idea was that
7: cooking was not just kind of stumbling into the kitchen and doing things the way your mother did. You had to open a book, one of their cookbooks, they hoped, which would give you a very clearly written out, careful recipe, which you would follow exactly. It would be kind of nutrient first. It would not be flavor first. It would not be pleasure first.
6: This is definitely the way my mom cooked. When my mom cooked for our family, her focus was on how to provide the best nutrition with the least amount of time, money, and effort. She didn't know it, but it was exactly the kind of cooking Ellen Richards and the early home economists would have taught. Back at the turn of the 20th century, scientists were just starting to study nutrition and calories. And those early home economists had some pretty strange theories about food, including the belief that men's and women's bodies required different foods for optimum health.
7: Fannie Farmer, the great authority who ran the Boston Cooking School, she used to publish dinners for men and luncheons for women. And the dinners for men... Everything was kind of big and hefty and full of protein. If there was a salad, you didn't just pass it on your own, you anchored it with a huge serving of ham. And then the women's meals were, oh, maybe a little omelet or a little creamed fish and then 16 different desserts. The
6: home economists were big on salads, at least for women, but they were always looking for ways to contain them, to make them look pretty on the plate.
7: You would have a scoop of some kind of salad in a little lettuce leaf. Or you would scoop it into a hollowed out tomato or a hollowed out turnip. That must have been delicious. There was a salad that was encased in a block of ice. I have never figured out what they really meant by that or how you were supposed to get to it. But the idea was to keep it within bounds. And this is where gelatin came into the picture. When jello and easy to use, granulated gelatin came along at the turn of the century, it went right into salads.
0: Gelatin salads gave women the opportunity to be creative in the kitchen. Manufacturers like Jell-O and Knox continued to flood the market with brightly illustrated recipe booklets. But women soon discovered that they could add anything to gelatin, as long as it wasn't fresh pineapple. Fresh pineapples, by the way, interfere with the gelling process. Women would bring their most impressive gelatin salads to potlucks and ladies' lunches. And then they'd share the recipes with their friends and in community cookbooks.
6: In those old community cookbooks, it's often difficult to tell the salads from the desserts. So when Bessie Dahl submitted her lime jello, cream cheese, canned pears, and whipped cream recipe to 1961's Square Dance Cookbook, it was listed in the salads section. That was your salad.
7: That was the healthy part. I don't think the American palate has ever recovered from discovering this.
0: Old Bay seasoning is everywhere. It's sprinkled on seafood, fries, and it's even used in ice cream. Old Bay seasoning would not exist if not for one man, who had to fight big corporations who tried to steal his secret spice mix. Reporter Claudia Rosenbaum tells the story of Gustav Brune and his iconic seasoning.
8: And with the spices in hand, Gustav's Baltimore Spice Company was born. It wasn't long before Gustav had a steady stream of customers coming upstairs from the seafood markets looking for something to put on their crabs. Here's Gustav as he remembers it. When I saw the pepper is uh, used and seafood, a lot of seafood, so I thought, I am a specialist in, in uh, making seasonings in Germany, uh, mixed uh, mixed spices. So I uh, just uh, thought I could make a ready seasoning for the seafood. As Ethan Frisch, a spice expert from Burlap and Barrel, says, Gustav's ability to nail a taste that appeals to so many people is really unusual in the spice trade. Creating something that people will like, that uh, sort of
2: appeals to a wide range of people and can be used in a, a lot of different ways is really difficult. And that's also even harder because there are so many amazing spice blends that are part of traditional cuisine from all around the world. Often they change a lot, household to household or town to town.
8: Gustav worked on perfecting his crab seasoning blend, but he also knew that he had to keep his blend recipe secret from others so nobody could copy the recipe. By law, Gustav knew he had to individually list ingredients if they made up more than 2% of the total weight of the product. But he also knew that anything kept under that amount could just be labeled, quote-unquote, spices. And so that's what he did. As Ethan explains, it's typical for seasoning makers to use this loophole to hide their exact secret recipes. you don't
2: talk about spice blends, that's always a very secretive, very proprietary conversation.
4: Yeah, I see this a lot in our product reporting. That 2% will really kill you. Companies can really hide behind it. So we're, we're trying to figure out why we like one brand more than another. The differences are often hidden in that 2%. So Gustav knew what he was doing. He's a smart man.
8: Yeah, word spread through the fish market, and everyone wanted to get a taste of Gustav's spice blend. Word eventually reached McCormick, and then they tried to replicate the recipe themselves. So in order to throw McCormick off, Ralph said his father added a whole laundry list of additional spices that he used in tiny amounts, using 13 in total. Gustav was sure he had created the perfect blend, but he had one main problem, customers. He tried peddling the seasoning himself, but there were no takers. The local fish market and the customers were sticking with their homemade blends. But one day, Gustav got chatty with a man around the corner who was selling steamed crabs. Gustav insisted the man take a 10-pound box of seasoning for free. And wouldn't you know it? The next day, the man came back to Gustav and says his seasoning is pretty good. And soon he's selling more crabs. It wasn't long before word spread and the entire fish market was hooked on Gustav's seasoning blend. Gustav then decided to do something else unusual for the time. Instead of just selling the seasoning wholesale, he put it in small, round oyster cans and sold them in retail establishments. At first, Gustav didn't have a name for his seasoning. He just called it Delicious Brand Shrimp and Crab Seasoning. For every move Gustav made, it seemed McCormick followed. After Gustav put his cans on the shelf, McCormick came out with their own Delicious Shrimp and Crab Seasoning in almost identical cans. But as luck would have it, an advertising agent gave Gustav the idea to name his seasoning Old Bay. The distinctive name stood out. Here's Ralph.
9: And he came to my father and said, Gus, you know, there are a couple of steamship lines that just went out of business. Because we started to have highways that work better. And there was the bottom of steam packet line and that was just nicknamed the Old Bay line. She said, See you an know, Old Bay and I'm name for this stuff, isn't it? So that's how the name Obey came about.
8: Ralph, who by now was helping his father with the business, had another idea to help distinguish the bronze product from McCormick's.
9: I went to this artist over there, people who who lithographed these labels, and I said, I want something totally different from what is usually in the retail stores. In those days, it was pretty common for people to put very beautiful labels on their retail products. And I called them Rembrandts because they're you know, oh, all one more prettier than the next. I said, I don't want a red brand. I want something you can see all the way to the other end of the store. I want something sharp and simple and easy. we fiddled around with this thing and ultimately we came up with this design. It's what it's still today.
0: So this next story is very personal to me because it's about, well, my dad. It's a story about food, fighting and how a Chinese immigrant became an unlikely YouTube sensation. When my dad's YouTube channel started taking off, my sister Karen and I were, well, flabbergasted. It's
1: like, holy smokes, like, who is watching this? How on earth did this actually get so many views? Never would have thought that this kind of cheesy... Made at home video that I thought was really just for you and I as an instructional video was going to be watched by anyone outside of our home.
0: His most popular video was his recipe for Qinqiang style pork ribs. I ate this all the time growing up. He takes spare ribs, chop them into cubes, fry them up, and sauce it with a savory, sweet glaze of Chinese black vinegar. It was sticky and fatty and crispy and I'd slurp the meat off the bone in one go. Another one of his videos was Portuguese chicken, pou gai. This is a Hong Kong take of a dish from Macau. Bone-in chicken cooked in this thick coconut curry sauce. It's rich and comforting over rice. We'd eat that twice a month growing up. Something struck me as I watched my dad's cooking videos, amateur production values and all. This was a culinary trip down memory lane. Sweet and sour pork Honey walnut shrimp Baked pork chop rice I was 15 years old again Sitting at the dinner table That snarky little kid Who was about to say something sarcastic Well, he was too preoccupied to speak That kid had food in his mouth My dad makes modest money From these YouTube videos Not like Kardashian influencer coin But maybe 75 bucks a month Enough to take my mom out for a nice meal. For a while, he was getting enough traction where he'd make a new video each month. XO chili sauce, beef noodles, a Hong Kong take on borscht, more like a minestrone than the Russian soup. At last count, he's made 30 cooking tutorials. Some have 400 views, others have over half a million. So the question remains, why does my dad do this? What's his motivation? He's retired, so maybe this helps pass the time. Maybe he gets a kick out of being a YouTube quasi-celebrity. His dream was always to be on that show, Iron Chef, walking through Kitchen Stadium with theatrical smoke, the crowd cheering. Or maybe there's another reason. There's one person who knows my dad better than anyone, and that's my mom, Catherine. She's always been the buffer between me and my dad or, more accurately, the person caught in the middle. She was raised in Hong Kong, but went to school in Canada, so she gets both Asian and Western perspectives. As I came to discover, the YouTube channel was an idea from both my parents.
10: So my grandfather's uh, sister-in-law used to live with my grandparents, and I'm very close to her. And she cooked for all of us, especially on the Chinese New Year or any uh, autumn festival, any kind, they will make a lot of good Chinese, uh, Shanghainese dishes. My favorite was the sweet and sour crispy fish, fried fish. And um, when I tried to visit her, like uh, she moved to New York when I uh, was a teenager. And uh, when I tried to ask her how to, I want her to give me the recipe, and she, I think she gets older and older and doesn't know how to um, explain to me. And when I ask her, she just said, oh, I forgot, I forgot. So I feel really bad. And I don't want all those traditional recipes to be forgotten. That's why dad and me try to think about making video for you and Karen so that when you guys are uh, adult, or when you grow older, when you remember the dishes that dad used to cook, you will know how to cook them.
11: When I try to teach you how to cook, you always say, "Of course you know by the time you're teenagers, okay So you will say, "No, no, no," and wait for a minute, wait for a minute. So that's why I think if I put this you know onto the YouTube, when everybody have the chance to learn, and also, probably you will, one day you will learn from that video too.
0: We all know how important bees are to our food production, but they've been under threat from pesticides, and now they face a new danger, hive thefts. Here's OG host Bridget Lancaster on our battle to save the bees.
4: A few decades ago, farmers would have just left pollination to the wild bees and other insects flying around. But in the past 40 years, two major changes have happened. Much more farming and far fewer bugs.
5: One of the few aspects of insect decline that people can perceive kind of directly themselves is often called the windshield phenomenon.
12: This is Professor Dave Goulson. He's an insect expert. He's got a book out soon called Silent Earth about insect declines and what we can do about them.
5: So exactly what is the windshield phenomenon? Back 30, 40 years ago, if you went for a drive in the summer, you had to stop every hour or two because the windscreen became completely covered in splatted insects and you'd have to scrub them off because you couldn't see where you were going. I'm in my 50s so I can distinctly remember family holidays in the summer where we had to my dad would get me to clean the windscreen and and today you can drive for hours in midsummer and and it just doesn't happen your windscreen stays clean
4: Turns out there are a lot of reasons why insects are dying out Number 1
5: habitat loss is the biggest one I think most people would agree we used to have lots of flower rich habitats flower rich Uh, grasslands, hay meadows, almost all disappeared and was replaced by much more intensively farmed land which has very few flowers. And number two? There's been the widespread introduction of lots of different pesticides, which really started after the Second World War. And there's a lot of evidence that they impact on wild insects.
4: And pesticides have an especially unusual effect on honeybees.
5: They can impair their ability to navigate and to remember which flowers are most rewarding. Some bee
4: scientists compare this to Alzheimer's disease. The bees can no longer remember where they live.
12: Which brings us to number three. We've accidentally spread bee diseases around the world.
4: Non-native bacteria, fungi, viruses.
12: There's also a particularly nasty parasite called the Varroa mite, So basically, when European honeybees were introduced to Asia, the varroa mite jumped across from Asian bees to the European ones and they had very little natural resistance to it. And the varroa mites can actually bring even more diseases to the honeybees.
5: The biggest impact it has is it vectors viral diseases from bee to bee. Things like deformed wing virus are now can be much more damaging to the honeybee hive because they're being transmitted more efficiently.
12: You see, communal living, whilst essential to the bee's
4: survival, also makes them incredibly vulnerable to infections. So, this drastic reduction in insects is in the background. And meanwhile, we've got a skyrocketing almond industry. In the past 20 years, almond production has tripled. Today, the US produces £2.28 billion annually.
12: In large part because many consumers have actually shifted away from dairy and for a while, almond milk was the go-to replacement for cow milk. Can I also get an almond milk latte, please?
8: Okay, great. Do you want to do almond coconut cream or
10: almond milk?
12: Uh, Almond coconut cream sounds good. Great. California now produces nearly 80% of the world's almonds and pretty much all of that is in just a handful of counties. And without enough wild bees... Buzzing around doing the mating for an almond or citrus tree, the industry has
4: to rely on honeybee hive rentals. The beehives sort of look like filing cabinets. They're wooden boxes all stacked on top of one another. And inside each box, there are a series of vertical slats that look like frames. Over time, the bees fill out these frames with honeycomb that's made of beeswax, and then they fill the comb with honey. There's an exit entry point for bees, so they fly out to go eat and then return to the hive to deposit more honey. Each hive contains a queen bee who lives for several years. She basically eats and lays eggs all day. Now, she's surrounded by between 10,000 to 80,000 drones and worker bees, who each live for just a few weeks. A few years ago, you could rent a hive for the
12: pollination season for around $35. Now, they're worth at least $100. And there are reports of some farmers paying up to $200 a hive.
4: So you can see why they're so tempting for thieves. And with all this demand, you might think that beekeepers would just think, OK, we'll start raising more bees. But it's not that simple.
12: As well as the problems of pesticides, varroa mite, habitat loss, honeybees also have another big problem that breeding more won't save them from. Bad diet. Just like with humans, we are what we eat. This is Noah Wilson-Rich. He's the co-founder of the Best Bees Company. They manage honeybee hives in urban areas, but really Noah's a bee evangelist. Like He gives TED Talks, he works with MIT and Harvard to extol and explore the wonders of bees.
2: Bees are vegan, so they're only getting their protein from pollen and their carbohydrates from nectar. So historically, from a bee's eye view, when they're going out foraging every day, they're looking for a good, healthy diet that is diverse with their nutrients.
12: So you're a bee, you're hungry, you go out looking for those nice, colourful flowers... Ideally, you're after a rainbow bowl, worthy of Instagram.
2: And the trouble now is really since World War II, when we started to industrialize our agricultural practices, we no longer have diverse farms that grow many different crops. Now we have a lot of monoculture farms that have one crop. So thinking about almonds, where it's about three counties in California, that's where the majority of almonds come from, and there's really nothing else growing there. That is a lot of white blossom. They're eating one thing, and it's like if you or I ate pizza every day, it might be tasty at first, the leftovers could be good, hot or cold, but then we're not going to feel so well if we're doing it for about a month. And this means bees are dying. At unprecedented alarming rates.
4: In California, an estimated $300 million is spent each year on renting over 2 million hives, or about 40 trillion honeybees, for these pollination gigs. And if you think that's crazy... Here's where it gets even crazier. 40% of those hives die every year. The beekeeper opens up the hive to find a dead queen bee surrounded by tens of thousands of dead worker bees and drones. In the US, bees
12: are classified as livestock. Could you imagine 4 in 10 cattle dying from disease each year? Or 10 billion pigs? That almond cream
2: latte, it suddenly has quite, A bitter aftertaste, doesn't it? It's a pollination superhighway where over two or two and a half million beehives live on flatbed trucks on our nation's highways for most of the year.
12: By renting out their hives to pollinate huge monocultures, beekeepers are in some ways sending them off to die. But at the same time, we can't really live without them.
0: This next story has everything. It's got fried chicken, segregation, gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, and pyramid schemes. Here's fast food historian Marsha Chatlin talking about the history of Mahalia's glory fried chicken.
13: Like so many others in the late 1960s, the Hooker brothers caught the franchising bug, and they wanted to try their luck. The idea was this, one fried chicken recipe, two brands, with two different music celebrity faces, Mahalia Jackson and Minnie Pearl.
4: So what was with this two-pronged approach to their branding? Why did they go that route?
13: It has to do with something called market segmentation. Instead of creating one brand and trying to scoop up all the customers, you create two different brands for different types of customers. In this case, it was about race. The Hooker brothers wanted to run two celebrity brands at once, where African-American diners are invited to Mahalia's and white diners would be offered a seat at Minnie's. The Hooker brothers approached gospel music queen, Mahalia Jackson, and her friend, civil rights attorney, Benjamin Hooks, and asked if they would become business partners. Mahalia Jackson was famous, not only for her singing, but also for her work in civil rights. She sang at John F. Kennedy's inauguration, the March on Washington, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral. And her name graced the Marquise of the Newport Jazz Festival, Carnegie Hall, and yes, a fried chicken restaurant. And together, the Hooker brothers, Mahalia and Benjamin Hooks, developed Mahalia's Glory Fried Chicken. It wasn't just another fast food restaurant. The concept was built around Mahalia's own commitment to civil rights. She wanted her restaurants to make a difference. Mahalia's franchise locations were part of a trend in the late 1960s and 1970s, in which Black-owned restaurants were seen as a way of providing employment, job training, and philanthropy to Black communities. They advertised in African-American newspapers and magazines as a potential franchise opportunity for churches and community groups. I even found some old pictures of them. They had commissioned a Black architecture firm to design them to look like churches, with a center vestibule and dramatic archways, I also read that while you ate, you could hear Mahalia's music. Meanwhile, the Hooker brothers approached Minnie Pearl. The Grand Ole Opry's Minnie Pearl was the face of country music for decades, and she appeared on the jamboree variety show Hee Haw between 1969 and 1991. While Mahalia's brand was very Black economic power, Minnie's brand was all about the family meal.
6: It's Sunday at Many Pearls. (laughs) Friends, family, and food to plenty. What,
8: fried chicken, my friend?
6: And of course, plenty of Many Pearls chicken.
13: The two different views of what a chicken dinner could do in the late 1960s are very reminiscent of what fast food symbolized in different communities.
4: So did this two-pronged, two-faces approach work?
13: Yes and no. For Mahalia's, it seemed like several dozen opened across the South, and there were some in the Midwest. For Minnie's, there seemed to be more locations. By 1969, they had more than 200 restaurants open and lots in the works. And that was part of the problem. It expanded really, really rapidly, and that's actually what caused it to come crashing down. The Hooker brothers were creative in their marketing strategy of segmenting the consumer base and trying to appeal to what they believed each audience wanted. They were also a little too imaginative in financing their business. When John Jay and Henry signed up to franchise location owners, they only collected security deposits, equaling about 10% of the $20,000 fee. And if that sounds too good to be true, it's because it is. This wasn't charity. It was a not-so-legitimate expansion plan that theoretically would allow the hookers to expand both Mahalia Jackson's and Minnie Pearl's restaurants on very little money. And what were they supposed to do when that money ran out? The brothers signed up more people for stores. They used their many connections in Tennessee to get people to buy in. So the Hooker Brothers' early investors were a list of Tennessee's who's who. A member of Congress, a former Tennessee Secretary of State, the publisher and editor of the local paper, and a former coach of the Tennessee Volunteers football team. They recruited new franchisees, collected security deposits, and used that money for the existing restaurants. And very few of these people had any restaurant experience, including the Hooker Brothers.
4: So correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds a little bit like they're building a business in, shall we say, some sort of triangular shape that's dependent (laughs) on money
13: coming from the bottom, working its way to the top. You got it. The Hooker brothers were running what some described as a pyramid scheme. (laughs) Right. Right. So for a while, some of their locations reported big profits and the Hooker brothers were able to keep up the new deals. Their business was considered the future of fast food. And eventually they went public and offered the purchase of their stock in May of 1968. The stock was a big hit. It opened at $20 a share and closed at 40 by dinnertime. Nearly a year later, the brothers had signed deals for 1,200 restaurants. But then John Jay wanted to get back into politics, and he mounted a campaign to run for governor again in the nineteen seventy election.
9: He wants better care for all the ages, better education and more livable wages. He wants better highways and more industry. Vote John Jay Hooker for Tennessee.
4: So I assume that running a chicken business while you're
13: running for governor might be a little bit complicated? Complicated doesn't even begin to describe it. First of all, their never-ending borrowing structure was not sustainable. By waiting until after a franchise restaurant was built to start demanding fees, the Hooker brothers were not able to cover their expenses. But they kept on signing more people without a real plan for building out locations from Nashville to Los Angeles. The brothers figured they should get out of chicken before John Jay ran. They had planned to sell off their business, but before they could, the SEC got involved. <laughs> the party is over. The
0: SEC <laughs> is
4: in there, and that means things have gotten real serious.
0: This next story comes from reporter Ashia Auberg. She visits a group of Somali farmers attempting to make a new life in the state of Maine.
14: Somali Bantu people settled in different American cities, Atlanta, Columbus, Salt Lake City, Pittsburgh. Mahidin and his family settled in Syracuse, New York, and it was about one year after he arrived when he got the call asking to move to Maine. At the time, Maine was becoming a new hotspot where Somali Bantu people wanted to settle. Starting a community organization and a farm was a large undertaking for anyone to consider. But Mahidin was one of four people who went to high school in the refugee camps in Kenya, and he spoke English. While in Kenya, Mahidin also founded a school.
11: I started a school called Somalabatu Primary School.
14: So, coupled with Mahidin's ability to speak English, navigate complex nonprofit paperwork, and skillfully farm, it became clear why Mahidin was chosen as their potential leader. Mahidin found himself liking Maine.
11: The ruralness. The fresh air, you know, you can breathe without smelling a fume. I'm like, okay, I like here. And then I sent my family to here in October of 2005. And then that's how I completely moved to Maine.
14: Maine was appealing for many reasons, but what was most promising was the prospect of farmland. According to the Maine Farmland Trust, there's over 1,300,000 acres of farmland in Maine. Mahidin's first item of business was figuring out how they were going to organize a nonprofit that would run the farm. Mahedin wanted to create an organization that was for Somali Bantu and by Somali Bantu. In a sense, they were starting an affinity-based movement, or a collection of people organized based on shared identity, characteristics, or life experiences. And Mahidan believed that the only way for his people to become liberated was to do it on their own terms.
11: Our job as a nonprofit running person was to uplift people who are on the lowest a human being can be.
14: But it wasn't going to be easy. The first barriers that Mahidan encountered while starting his new life in Maine were mainly administrative. While trying to secure land, he didn't have access to credit. He also had to navigate the complex legal language when it came to land leases. Mahidan says the systems were very different from the ones he was familiar with.
11: Back home in Africa, you did not need a lawyer to draft a lease. Like, lease was always verbal and ended in handshake. And 99% of the time, people followed the agreements.
14: And then there was the issue of having to navigate racism and discrimination in Maine.
0: When the refugees began arriving 15 years ago, many longtime residents were resentful. Lewiston's economy was tanking. Businesses were closing. Jobs were scarce. The newcomers were seen as welfare freeloaders.
14: In this 60-minute segment, a Somali Bantu store owner is interviewed about her experience, which sounded all too familiar to Mahidan. They say, why you come here? Go
4: back where you come from.
11: People think... We are in Maine just for welfare benefits. We do not want to work. And when I say we, it it was about us, the Somalis.
14: Mahidin recalled the time he was trying to purchase a tractor. He was hoping to use it for the farm.
11: I went to this tractor sales place and I'm standing in line. This person is not acknowledging me. I approached him, I said, I'm looking for a used, mid-sized tractor. He's like, seriously, what tractor? Why? I'm like, I'm a farmer and I have my money. He's like, you're kidding me. You can't be a farmer. I'm like, I'm a farmer and I want to buy a tractor. He's like, don't waste my time. And I ended up going online and buying this tractor we have online because I could not even convince somebody with my own money.
14: Experiences like this one, though, only solidified Mahidan's determination to start an organization for the Somali Bantu community.
13: When we return, Mahidan begins building from the ground up.
0: Thanks for listening to The Best of Proof. Download the Hark app to hear playlists of genius podcast moments. You can get started with a Hark list that I hosted on the origins of fast food chains or check out Forbidden Foods, Cocktail Histories, or Little Known New York Food History.